Good morning, everyone. My name is William Sofield, and I no longer have any official leadership here. Uh, so I want to thank my brother pastors here for inviting me to tell you why this is important, what we're doing here. I wouldn't miss this for anything uh, because this is family, and I love family. Let me tell you about my brother, Josh. Uh, I think this was when we first got together many years ago. I think this was the first thing I told you why it was important, and I, I want to return to it. My brother Josh um, is about a year younger than me, and he and I are about as different as we could possibly be and be in the same family. Uh, so he lives in a double-wide trailer in the middle of rural Tennessee. you got to drive at least six minutes before you see another house. I love the fact that the Chapel Hill bus stops right in front of my house, right? We're very different that way. We're very different. Um, I have two dogs that I'm a little embarrassed about how much they are uh, doted upon. My brother has dogs. He has horses. He has hogs. Um, his three hogs are named uh, bacon, pork, and sausage, right? Okay, we, we're very different that way. Um, we're just very different, and uh, he listens to different music. He votes differently than I do. Uh, he, let's see, he's got three girls, and when they're in elementary school, he teaches them to shoot guns. I've never shot a gun in my life and don't plan to. We're very different. But let me tell you this. On Thanksgiving for dinner, there's nobody I want to sit next to more than my brother Josh. Because he's family. And those things that I just said are differences, are real differences, but they're superficial. And when we look underneath, then my brother Josh and I talking on the phone, uh, we'll say, oh, so you all know, many of you know, I'm looking for a job right now. And he talks to me and he says, oh, you're looking for a job. I know what that's like. That's hard. I'll pray for you. Um, or we'll talk together and we'll say, oh, yeah, mom is losing her eyesight a lot quicker than she realizes. And what can we do about that and how can we help her? Those are the real issues of family, and that's what brings us together. And listen, what we're doing right here right now, this is family. And there are superficial differences. That's fine. But this is family. And, that's, and, and the Bible talks a lot about Christians in terms of family. We are brothers and sisters. Some of us here are old enough to be mothers and fathers <laughs> spiritually. That's, fine. That's good. But here's the thing. Uh, your family are different from your friends. Let me tell you, my brother Josh, I would not have picked him as a friend. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot in common, but I love him dearly, dearly. And family is that way. You don't get to pick your family. And I'll tell you what, if I, ha if I got to pick my family, some of you would not be part of it. <laughs> but in the wisdom of God, he has put us together, and I'm so glad for that, because he is m so much wiser than we are. So we are here at a Thanksgiving time family meal, and I love being here with you. Let's Amen. deepen our love together and never stop. Good morning. Good morning. Let the church say amen. Amen. 
I'm kind of lost for words right now, and that's kind of unusual for somebody like me because I talk all the time. But when I think about heaven, I think about this room right here and right now, the diversity of who God created us all to be, but the unification of love itself. So I do thank God for this moment that the people of God can come together under one accord and praise his holy name. The word of God says he's coming back for a church without stain and without blemish. You are, we are the church. And what God is looking for for, from all of us is an agape or agape kind of love that we can look beyond the borders and we can see each other the same way that Jesus saw you and the same way that Jesus saw me. And Jesus thought that you and I was all worth dying for. And God expects us to have those same lenses when we look at one another. We're living in a day and we're living in a time where racial tension has gone to a new height. Can I get an amen, somebody? But it takes disciples like me and you to keep this love train moving forward because God will hold me and you. God will hold us accountable because the word of God says to go and make disciples of all nations. The word of God does not tell us about what their social economic status is. It does not dictate to us what their ethnicity is, but the word of God says to love, to go, and to make disciples. So this is a wonderful time for me. I remember moments when we couldn't assemble like this. I'm 59 years of age, 60 in September. I came up doing segregation. I remember when this was not a normal thing to happen. But look at the manifestation of God's love. See, love can't be defeated. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin. See, love covers hate. Love covers jealousy. Love covers racism. Love covers bigotry. Love covers all of these things. So I thank God for this precious, precious moment. And not that it would just end here. That when we leave here, when we go to different, our different places, our different jobs, and our different homes and communities, that we learn how to reach out to those who don't look quite like us. Everybody needs love. Marvin Gaye said it best. He said, I don't care who you are, a thief, beggar, or a superstar. As long as you was made from God above, everybody needs love. (laughs) Can I get an amen, somebody? This is what happens looks like. God's people coming together. And it's wonderful. Don't let this feeling bypass you. Don't let it stop. Let's keep it moving. If you would just humble yourself and close your eyes and just pray along with me. God, you're just so awesome. Father God, not only did you bless us with another day, you blessed us, oh Lord God, with another opportunity to marvel at the gift of love and just your children coming together under one accord. Father God, there's so many things going around in this world and in this country, oh Lord God. And even as your Bible dictates, prophesies about the end of times, oh Lord God, I honestly believe in my spirit, oh Lord God, that we are walking in these end days. And in your words, you say, Lord God, it's your desire that no man or no woman should be left behind. So Father God, light up the fire underneath us, oh Lord God. That we will go out, Father God, and do the work that you've called us to do. Because, Lord God, it is your desire that no man 
or no woman should be left behind. Father God, there's floods everywhere. Places where we thought there wouldn't be floods. Floods in North Carolina, Lord God. There are fires everywhere, Lord God. Every time we turn around, there's a new state, Lord God, that's caught up in flames, oh, Father God. Volcanoes are bursting at the seams everywhere we turn around, oh, Lord God. And people are running for their lives. It's your Bible what prophesies, oh, Lord God. There'll be, un, there'll be earthquakes in places, Lord God, there wouldn't be earthquakes before. Famine in places there wouldn't be famine before. The heat itself, oh, Lord God, like never before. Lord God, I believe that you're on your way to come back and to claim your church. Father God, help us to be ready, oh, Father God. Help us, oh, Lord God, to have that love in our heart, oh, Father God, that wherever we are, Lord God, the illumination of Jesus will light up the place wherever we are, and people will feel the love of Christ because, Lord God, we are your hands, we are your arms, we are your feet upon the earth. And, Father God, use us, oh, Lord God, for your glory, for you are the potter, we are the clay. You made us, oh, Lord God, and before you even placed us in our mother's womb, Lord God, you had a purpose and a destination for each and every one of our lives. However, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. Father God, help us to keep our eyes on the prize, and that prize is Jesus Christ. That prize is that heavenly realm, oh, Father God, that you've gone to prepare a place for us that wherever you are, that we may be also one day, oh, Lord God. The reality of it all is that we all have to lay down one day. But, Lord God, but to wake up in paradise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you accomplished on that cross, oh, Lord God. For we are not worthy, oh, Lord God. We are not worthy because, Lord God, we don't always think right. We don't always talk right. We don't always love right. We don't always forgive right, oh, Lord God. Let us not be like Lot's wife. Turn back, looking behind, turning into that pillar of salt, turning into that pillar of hatred, turning into that pillar of jealousy. But, Father God, help us to move forward, to help move your church forward, oh, Lord God. When it's all said and done, just as Christ said into thy hands, I commit my spirit then we will be able to do so with our reservation because, Lord God, we completed the task. We completed the mission, and, oh, Lord God, we did everything that you called us to do. So, Father God, at this moment, we glorify your holy name. We thank you, oh, Lord God, for this day. And, Father God, continue to bless your churches, oh, Lord God. Bless us, oh, Lord God. Lord God, we are confronted with so many obstacles, oh Lord God, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing impossible for you. Let us remember, oh Lord God, if we plug into the power source, which is in Christ Jesus, oh Lord God, whatever we're going through, Lord God, you can give us that surge of energy, oh Lord God, that we can make it over that hill, like that little train that couldn't make it up, it couldn't make it up. But sooner or later, Lord God, when we plug into you, we can make it up that hill. And that hill, oh Lord God, will lead us to heaven. Oh, Father God, have mercy upon each and every one of us. For we all have sinned and felt short of the glory of God. Lord God, we thank you for your endless grace. Your endless grace, oh Lord God, that extends beyond all boundaries. We thank you for your love, oh Lord God, when nobody else loved us. Lord God, how you reached out and you lifted us up, oh Lord God. For some of us, when people gave up on us, oh Lord God. But Lord God, you never gave up on us. And, Lord God, when you look at us, you see each and every one of us as a precious jewel, sometimes a diamond in the rough, but we are still a jewel to you. 
So, Lord God, continue to polish us up. And let the brilliance of your glory shine forward, oh, Lord God, so that people, when they see us, they see a mirror reflection of our Lord we serve, and his name is Jesus. Once again, oh, Lord God, we thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you for my brothers here today, Lord God, who allowed this opportunity, who were part of this opportunity, oh, Lord God, for your children to come together. Let every man, let every woman, let them say amen. God bless you. Amen. <laughs> I, I love this opportunity when we're able to get together as church families like this. I love it. And I love those two men right there, too. So grateful for their encouragement and their friendship and their leadership in this community. Um, I want to say something to each of them real quick. Pastor William, thank you for being a catalyst of getting this started. Um, we honor that. Thank you. And I also want to publicly disagree with you over something. <laughs> you started by saying you don't have any uh, official capacity of leadership. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. Yeah. Your authority... And your spiritual authority does not come from a position. It comes from the calling and the anointing of God on your life. And that is very evident. And we honor that today. Love you, man. Absolutely. And Reverend Cradle, you can come preach here anytime you want. <laughs> I love you. Always good to be with you. Have y'all ever been hugged by this man? <laughs> I'm telling you what. We're in uh, Exodus chapter 19 today where God speaks to the people of God, to his people on the mountain. And I just thought when he started, the first words he said when he's like, good morning. Like, That's what it sounded like, y'all. That is it. Also, I'm jealous that you can quote Marvin Gaye and get away with it. <laughs> I'm trying that next Sunday. I'll let you know how it goes for me, all right? Awesome. I love you. I appreciate you so much. and Thank you for your friendship and for carrying this on and for jumping right in and without even skipping a beat saying, yeah, absolutely, this is, this is something that's going to continue under my leadership. So we honor you today and your leadership. Thank you. Amen. So as a church family at Love Chapel Hill, we've been walking through the book of Exodus uh, throughout the summer. And uh, so we are coming up to Exodus chapter 19 today. That's where we're going to be. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of background before we get into that, because the background sets up what we're doing here today. And it speaks directly to what is happening in this room today. So as we all know the story of Exodus, it's this epic narrative that's at the heart of the Old Testament. You cannot understand the rest of the Old Testament and really you cannot understand the New Testament without having a glimpse of this story of the Exodus. The Jewish people, the people of God, the people of Israel, they, they take their identity from this story. They understand themselves through the lens still today of this story. This is not history. 
for the people of Israel, this is who they are. The story of the God who heard them crying in slavery, crying out for freedom, crying out for relief and release from that oppression. And a God who heard the cries of slaves and did something about it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This God who comes down and comes to their rescue, who breaks them out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at that time, under that cruel reign of the Pharaoh, and God breaks them out. When Pharaoh won't let them go on his own as God raises Moses up and sends him to demand that that he let the people go, when Pharaoh won't do it, then God comes at Pharaoh with ten different plagues. Each one of them designed to be a rebuke, a direct rebuke to one of the false gods that Egypt was placing their hope in. And one after another, one through ten, but God is the last one standing. Ten and O. all right? He runs the table, and he hasn't even started yet. He hasn't even started yet. Pharaoh finally breaks. The people are let go as they are coming out of Egypt. They come up in that moment where they're caught between the desert and the sea. And Pharaoh decides he's made a mistake and one more time his heart is hardened and he decides to go back after these people that he believes he owns. No. (laughs) And he comes after them. And as the people are trapped there, It says that the Spirit of God moves over the water. He breathes over the water. And echo back to Genesis chapter 1. He breathes over the water. The waters begin to part all night long. He's moving over the waters until the waters open up and the people of Israel walk across on dry land and the army of Pharaoh is left at the bottom of the sea. God conquers. That's where we're at. So here we come up to chapter 17. And we get this moment in chapter 17. Uh, my friend Joe did an amazing job last week uh, of teaching uh, through God providing for the people in the wilderness. And then we get this moment in Exodus chapter 17 where they find themselves in battle. They're against the uh, Amalekites and they're in this battle. And as they are fighting, Moses and Aaron and her, it says, they go up to the top of the hill. They go up to the top of the hill. And when I read that, I thought, oh, top of the hill. Let's go see a game. (laughs) Moses, Aaron, and Herb catching a Carolina game at top of the hill. All right. So they're up there. And as the battle is going on, the people of Israel are losing the battle any time the arms of Moses begin to drop. But as Moses' arms are lifted up, It says that the people of Israel are winning the battle. God is fighting for them and they are winning the battle led by the warrior Joshua down there in the valley in the thick of the battle. And so as as the arms of Moses begin to get tired, as he's lifting his arms and he's lifting the staff of God, then Aaron and her, her on either side, they begin to lift up his arms. They begin to hold his arms up in the midst of that battle. And as they do, the people of Israel are victorious against their enemies that are seeking to crush them. This speaks directly to who we are as a group of people. Exodus chapter 17 tells us this, as God's people here in this community, that we are united in struggle. We are united 
in struggle. We are holding each other's arms up in this fight. We're not alone. We're not alone. There are times when it feels like you might be alone. You are not alone. We are together in this fight, and we are holding each other's arms. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 18, tells us that not only are we united in struggle, but we are diverse in strength. We are diverse in strength. It tells us that Moses' father-in-law comes to visit him, and he looks at all that is happening. And Moses tells him the whole story, and he's rejoicing with him, and he's like, this is amazing what is going on. But then he sees the way that Moses is leading the people. And Moses, every single argument that the people have, they bring their case to Moses, and he makes a decision. And Jethro tells him, what you are doing is not good. And Moses is like, did you see the sea thing? Like, that was pretty good, all right? And the arms in the air, like, that was awesome. What are you talking? What you're doing is not good. You can't carry this by yourself. There are other people who need to be released in their strengths. And you focus on your strength. Raise other people up into leadership. You're a group of people who are diverse in strength. We're united in struggle. And at the same time, as churches, we are diverse in strength. We are not alone, but we also need to remember that we are unique. And as congregations, God has given us unique callings in this community and unique giftings to lead to live those callings out. We are together a beautiful expression of the creativity of God. I want to pause for a moment and I want to honor the diversity and strength that we have in this room. I want to take a moment and honor St. Joseph's CME Church for the role that you have played in the community of Chapel Hill and Carborough. Throughout your history, you have been a hub of movement and change. During the civil rights movement here in our town, you were at the center of that. You were leading the way. You were at the heart of it. And we as a community are grateful for the leadership that you showed during that period. We're grateful for the leadership that you continue to show generation after generation after generation in this community. Are you the largest church in Chapel Hill? Nope. Are there other churches that have newer buildings than you do? Yes. Is there any church in the town of Chapel Hill that is more significant than you? No. Absolutely not. We honor who you are, and we honor the leadership that you continue to give to our community, and we are humbled to be brothers and sisters alongside of you. We're united in struggle, and we're diverse in strength. And then chapter 19, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. In chapter 19, it tells us that as God's people, we are peculiar in strategy. We are peculiar in strategy. Some people are like, amen. I don't know what y'all are doing, but all right. Let's read together Exodus chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip ahead to verses 16 through 20. Here's what it tells us here at this point in the story. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. 
After they set out from Rephidim, they entered this desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings. That's such a tender image right there. I carried you on eagles' wings. I lifted you out of the struggle, and I am bringing you to this place. Did you do that for yourself? No. Did you deserve it or earn it? No. I did it for you. I carried you on eagles' wings. I did for you what you could never have done for yourselves. I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, skipping forward to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. This is on the third day after God told them to take two days to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves for this encounter that they were going to have. And they are very glad they did after God showed up like this. Thunder, lightning, thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on the top of Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. So Moses went up. We're going to unpack a few things here in this passage. First of all, we're going to begin with the setting. All right, It says that they're coming through the desert, and then out of the desert, they're coming to the foot of the mountain. All right, Mount Sinai. Now, setting is always important in any story, all right? It has a role to play, an important role to play in any story. It's like another character in the story that you need to understand. It doesn't have any dialogue, but it always has a lot to say to us. Setting matters. And in this moment, the setting, the landscape is speaking to us about the importance of this moment. We've already seen this before. Right? We saw this when they came up against the sea. And we talked about the way that throughout Scripture, the sea uh, represents it's this symbol of uncertainty. It's this symbol of mystery and a symbol of fear because we don't know what is lying beneath the surface. All right, Anybody here still scared to go out like anywhere over their knees in the ocean? All right, Shark week. I'm good. All right, I'll go to the pool now. Thank you. Very much, all right? So it's uncertainty, it's fear, it's mystery. 
And when they come up against the sea, that's what they are feeling. And God opens it wide up and they walk through on dry ground. Also representing the resurrection of Jesus, the grave, this symbol of death opened up. This way where we thought there was no possible way. Also, we've already seen that they've been wandering through the desert. God has been leading them through the desert, even though that was not the most direct route and the shortest route for them to go. And the desert throughout Scripture represents waiting and preparation. And now we come to the mountain. The mountain is another important symbol all the way throughout Scripture. It represents an encounter with God and a revelation of the glory of God. Over and over, we see this taking place throughout scriptures. It's where we get the, the, the idea of the mountaintop experience that we seek after, this kind of spiritual high experience that we don't want to come down from, this mountaintop experience. So we see them coming to the foot of the mountain. We see God descending in glory and power, thunder, lightning, smoke, and fire. And we think this is as good as it's going to get. We should just stay right here. Set up camp and stay here. But do the people end their story there at the mountain? No, they do not. Why? Because they still have ground to cover. Because God has promised them a different land, and they have not reached the promise yet. When we look at the mountain, it's like, man, we just want to stay here. But God didn't just promise them a mountain. He promised them the promised land. This experience is incredible, but this experience isn't the end. This experience isn't all, and this experience is not going to last forever for them because there's still more ground to go. God is giving them more than a mountain. God is giving them a mission. And the world needs them to keep moving forward. The world needs these peculiar people of God to keep moving forward. More ground to cover, more journey left to go. Sometimes you and I get discouraged when we see the landscape start to change. We get discouraged when the landscape is changing. We want to just stay at the mountain when we face a desert of waiting. Or when we face a sea of uncertainty, we think, I just want to stay at the mountain. But we have to remember this journey of following Jesus is a dynamic journey. It's not a static settlement. God keeps moving on us. He keeps moving on us. And if the landscape is changing for you, then that's a sign that God is moving in your life. And he's got new places that he's wanting to take you, new ground for you to cover. The journey is not over yet. If you're in a desert of preparation, desert of waiting, this isn't the end of the story for you. God is moving you, and he's going to move you through that. If you're facing a sea of uncertainty, that's not the end of the story. And if you are at this moment on a mountaintop, enjoy it. But the mountain isn't the end. God's giving you more than a mountain. God has given you a mission. And there's more journey left to go. If God is moving, the landscape will change on you. This is the temptation that Peter falls into in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. In this moment where Jesus reveals to his disciples, to the inner circle there, his glory. 
And it's, it's intentionally a parallel of this moment. They go up onto a mountain with Jesus, and suddenly Jesus appears to them. It says his face is shining bright like lightning. Does that sound familiar? A cloud descends and engulfs them and envelops them. Does that sound familiar? God speaks to them out of the cloud. And they're like, this is incredible. This is amazing. And in the midst of that, they don't only see Jesus. They also see, wait for it, you guessed it, Moses. And also Elijah, another figure who had an incredible encounter with God. Where? On a mountain. In the same kind of way. And so in the midst of this, it says, even in the Gospel of Luke, I love this. It says that Jesus, in that moment, is talking with, with Moses and with Elijah. And he's talking, in English, it says he's talking about his departure. But the Greek word is not departure. The Greek word is his exodus. The connections are crazy there. And just like we want to do, Peter, in that moment, says, let's just stay here on this mountain. Let's stay here. I was talking to Justin on the phone yesterday. He spent the weekend up on a mountain in West Virginia. That's his home state. And the first thing he said is, can I just stay on the mountain? Can I just build a tent here and just stay on the mountain? That's what we want to do, but we can't. God's given us more than a mountain. He's given us a mission. There's more ground to cover. There's more journey left to go. Another theme that we see repeated here that we've seen before in this book of Exodus is the theme of fear. That when God descends on the mountain in all of his glory, smoke, fire, lightning, thunder, all of it. In that powerful moment, it says the people all trembled. Of course they did. Of course they did. This is a theophany. This is a vision of God. Throughout scripture, when people have a vision of God, it doesn't come like when they're sitting in a field of sunflowers with a soft breeze and warm sunshine. Most of the time they collapse and they're afraid they're about to die because of the holiness that they are encountering. And that's what happens. The people tremble in fear and they're right to do it. They should be afraid. They're catching just the slightest glimpse of his glory. And it sends them into this moment of trembling fear. Fear is a constant theme throughout the book of Exodus. It's not just connected to Yahweh, though. We've also seen this before. The people were afraid of someone else. They were afraid of Pharaoh. But we see the vast differences between these two types of fear. They're, they're afraid again. But this fear was different. This fear of Yahweh is totally different. Here's the deal. With Pharaoh, he created fear for them because he was afraid. Pharaoh was a fearful leader, and the thing he feared the most was losing power. And because he was afraid of losing power, he began to oppress God's people, and he forced them into slavery because he was afraid that they would grow too powerful and overtake him. So he did not want to share his power. So instead of sharing power, he shared his fear. And he multiplied the fear, and he gave his fear to them, and he caused them to fear. Here's the problem. He saw himself as the center of the story, and he was afraid of being pushed out of that place of privilege. He saw himself as the center of the story, and he was afraid of being pushed out of that place of privilege. 
And this is how oppression begins. All throughout history, we see it. A person or a group of people see themselves as the center of the story. And when you begin to put yourself at the center of the story by nature, you force all others to the margins. And that is how oppression begins. Pharaoh is afraid. And in order to keep his power, he shares his fear. <laughs> and he multiplies his fear. In oppressive systems, it seems that the only thing that is distributed equally is fear. When the leaders in power are afraid of the people, they have to make the people afraid of each other. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does. He makes the rest of the Egyptians afraid, and he uses that fear to push the Israelites, and to force the Israelites into slavery. This is the anatomy of oppression. Of oppression. Fear drives the misuse of power. But the anatomy of deliverance is the opposite. The anatomy of deliverance is this. Perfect love drives out fear. That's what scripture promises us. Pharaoh was driven by fear and Yahweh will drive out the fear. Yahweh will drive out the fear. Even in this display of terrifying power. Anybody want to sign up to see this? No, thank you. I'll take you at, at your word, all right? That you are high and holy and amazing. This is caused them to tremble. And even in this moment of terrifying power, we see it. God did not use his power to force them into slavery. But the whole story is about how he used his power to deliver them into freedom. He's the opposite of Pharaoh. They were slaves to Pharaoh. But in this passage, it, it tells us that they are the children of Yahweh. They were owned by Pharaoh. But in this passage, it tells us they will be called Yahweh's treasured possession. There's a vast difference between those two things. He says to them, I am giving all of myself to you. Here's just a glimpse of it. The fire, the smoke, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake. That's just the first tiny glimpse of who I am. But I am giving all of myself to you. I am fully yours. And I am inviting you to become wholly mine. I am bringing you into a covenant relationship that I will never break. That's what we get here. These words that he is, is telling them, this is like the preamble of the covenant that he's making with them. Here's the covenant you're coming into. Here's who I am. I'm the one that carried you up out of Egypt, out of slavery on eagle's wings. And you will be to me a treasured possession a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Look at all that I've done that you could not do for yourself. Look at all that I've given to you that you did not deserve and could never earn. We see Pharaoh again and again and again trying to elevate himself. And what we have in this moment is the one of true power, the true one of high holiness descends. He descends on the mountaintop. The all high and holy God comes down to his people. And in this moment, we catch a glimpse of his character. This is the character of God. He is holy love. That's who he is. It's not just something that he does. It is who he is, the very fabric of God, his nature, his character. He is holy love. 
And we see both at play here. The trembling of the mountain, the fire, the glory, the smoke, the holiness, and yet he descends down to the people. Because God is holy, we could never go to him. But because God is love, he comes to us. That is the hope of the gospel. This is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. This time God doesn't come to us in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, but he comes to us in flesh and blood. And sin had to be judged, so he takes the judgment upon himself. And he brings us into a reconciled relationship with him. God initiates, God invites. And I love what happens at the end of that passage then. God comes down, he initiates, he invites. And what does Moses do? So Moses went up. So Moses went up, he responded. This is an act of surrender, and this is an act of consecration on the part of Moses. This is what God is calling all of us into today. This moment of consecration, this moment of surrendering ourselves to say, God, I am wholly yours. I am wholly yours, and I reaffirm my commitment to you today and the covenant that you have never broken with me. In some of the older translations, King James Version, for instance. Anybody grow up on the King James Version? There you go. Some of us still have the words memorized in the, in the King James Version, right? In the King James Version, in this passage, it, it, where it talks about a treasured possession, it actually uses this word. It uses the word peculiar. Peculiar. I love that word to describe God's people. Here's the definition of peculiar. It has two definitions. Number one, it can mean strange or odd, unusual. Yes, that's us. Let's just admit it, all right? Just embrace it, all right? John Wesley said, the world is my parish. I'd answer back, the weird is my parish, all right? That's, that's us, all right? That's who we are. Number one, strange or odd, unusual. But number two, it can mean this. Longing exclusively to. There's a definition of holiness for you right there. To belong exclusively to God. To surrender yourself exclusively to God. To become his peculiar people in this world. A kingdom of priests. Not just a kingdom with priests. Every religion in the world has priests, right? Someone who facilitates the religion. But this, God is saying, you will all be my priests. All of you, what a priest does is is facilitates a connection between God and the people. And he says, that's what you're going to be in the world for me. You're going to connect people to me. And he's calling them in that a holy nation belonging exclusively to me to love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbor in that same reckless and ridiculous kind of way. That's what he was calling them into and inviting them into. And so what did Moses do? Moses went up. God came down, initiated, invited, and Moses went up in an act of consecration, in an act of surrender to become and to be made into the peculiar people of God. That's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. I want to be strange and odd and unusual, but more than that, I want to belong exclusively to him. Every allegiance belongs to him. I give it all. I surrender it all. Take my life. All of it is yours. 
It's yours. Set me apart, not for my sake, but for the sake of the world. Set me apart, not for my glory, but for your glory. And make me holy, belonging exclusively to you. St. Joseph, one of the things that we share in common with you, Love Chapel Hill shares in common with you, is that heritage of coming out of the Methodist movement. The founder of that movement was a man named John Wesley, who lived in the 1700s in England. God ignited a flame in his heart. He described it as having his heart strangely warmed. And from that moment, he was never the same. And that spark in him became a wildfire of revival that swept across England and jumped the pond and came to us eventually too. A revival that brought about a spiritual awakening and a social reform at the same time. We want to see that again. We're longing for that. Here's what John Wesley said. It's his dream and his prayer. He said, I continue to dream and to pray about a revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowering of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. Amen. That's our prayer. That's what we want to see, people to be unleashed and this peculiar people of God to be a revival of holiness in our day. Unleashed. It's an authentic community empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's creational intentions. I'm going to have to steal that. I love that. We are to become movable mountains. The encounter of God that we have experienced, we're to take into the world to become movable mountains, to be monasteries and missionaries at the same time. Monasteries, this place of deep intimacy with God and a missionary, someone who takes that to the edges and the frontiers and every place they go. That's what we're called to. God initiates, God invites, and it's our job to go up like Moses and to respond to that invitation. Today, we're going to give you a chance to respond to that through taking this consecrated meal, this set-apart meal, these elements that you can find in any grocery store, but that take on a transformed significance for us in this moment, peculiar, set-apart, belonging exclusively to him. Taking straight from the story of Exodus, Jesus on his last night with his disciples as he was sharing the feast with them of Passover and remembering what God had done. He took the bread at the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken to make you whole. And then he took the, blood, the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you drink it, every time you taste of this, remember what I have done and consecrate yourselves to me again. Become my peculiar people in this world, belonging exclusively to me, carrying that mission with us everywhere we go, a movable mountain, a movable mountain.
We're going to invite you to come forward and to share in this meal. First, I'm going to invite Pastor William and Reverend Cradle to come forward to help serve the meal. There will be two sections. Pastor William will have you on this side. Reverend Cradle will be on the other side. And if you need a gluten-free option, that will be on this side as well. We invite you to come forward and to recommit yourselves again to this covenant that God has never broken, to surrender yourselves and to consecrate yourselves and to say to God, I want to be your peculiar person. Strange, maybe odd, probably belonging exclusively to you. Absolutely. That's who I want to be. Come and share in the meeting.